for our second episode of the Order of the Goblin podcast, we have Stardog join us, and he talks about various experiences in the occult and supernatural, as well as some conspiracies and other related things. We recorded this episode and went overboard a little bit, uh, so I just have a part of the conversation here. We may put the rest out at a later date, but we hope you enjoy what we do have coming up here. Enjoy. I grew up, I was a teenager in the 1970s. So um, there was a lot of books coming out. Uh, there was a Falcon Press in that I don't know, I don't know about the States, but in the UK there was a, uh, there was a press um, publishing company called Falcon that did a lot of the Robert Anton Wilson books. They also did a lot of sort of, uh, um, oh, I'm trying to think of his name now. Uh, sorry, gone. But they, the sort of esoteric, um, and at the same time, a lot of these sort of uh, classic horror films from the 60s were starting to be shown on TV. So like if most people, my first sort of um, introduction, as it were, in the 1970s to the sort of world of the supernatural as it's meant to be rather than just in fiction, was via fiction through people like Dennis Wheatley, so The Devil Rides Out. And they were just, they were sort of rip-roaring yarns, etc., etc., etc. And it was good versus evil. It's all very sort of black and white in terms of the way it viewed things. And then in about 83, I remember I picked up a copy, uh, a hardback copy of Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out and thought, I'll read it. I haven't read anything like it. I haven't read anything of his since I was like about 12, 13 years old. So I started reading Devil Rides Out about, uh, do you know the film? Uh, I'm not actually familiar. Oh, right. Well, there's a scene early on in it where there's uh, a djinn is summoned as a sort of defense against people prying into uh, the business of the coven. And in the book, I'm reading it, and it just suddenly it says, uh, it describes the jinn as having the true soul of the dark. Uh, the true dark, his eyes uh, reflected the true, the true darkness of a soul of a darkie. And I just looked at it and thought, "What? <laughs> what?" <laughs> and you can, at that moment, I just thought, "Wow!" Apart from being unbelievably racist, <laughs> yeah, sort of thing. Um, I just thought, "Wow." I'd never thought of it like that because the film, it's not made obvious. I mean, the guy is the bloke who plays the standard gin character in most 70s films. And I sort of like started looking at it in a different way. And then when you look at something like The Devil Rides Out, what you have is a, is a caste system, in fact. You've got, on the one side, you've got the sort of urbane, educated, uh, Crowley figure, and on the other side, you've got Richelieu, who's a count, and and his friends, who are all officers and gentlemen from the First World War, but he's the top bod. 
it's and it's all this thing about um, with my breeding and with my education, I can face this, <laughs> you know, and it's like what? And when you point this out to people, they look at you sort of like a bit nonplussed. They go, "No, look at it. This is the class system made manifest through." Um, in relation to the occult. And if you go back, Crowley came from, um, he came from a trade family, which is a kind of a weird, I don't know if you understand the term, but the trade class were the people who made money from uh, being skilled, by and large, uh, if not skilled, but skilled entrepreneurs. So families like the Sainsbury's family, in the shop, shops, they started out as greengrocers, in London, if I remember right, with a couple of stores and eventually ended up. So this trade class was this new class that had sort of come into being, particularly with the Victorian period. And Crowley came from that. His parents, I believe, owned, although they were um, quite religious, I believe they owned a brewery, if I remember right. He's quite local to me. He comes from about nine miles down the road from where he lived. But the trade class was viewed by the upper classes as um, nouveau riche. They were the nouveau riche of the 19th century. And whilst the landlord class was sort of losing their fortunes and often having to sell land, sell their castles, sell their manor houses, um, which culminated in the 1920s when literally hundreds of halls and um, manors closed down and were knocked down. I mean, the house I grew up in was built on the site of the local hall. The house I grew up in was built on what was called Attleborough Hall. And the trade class were almost like the salvation of the upper class in that they married between them uh, to guarantee, often just simply to guarantee to keep an old, you know, a parcel of land that they'd owned for five, six hundred years or whatever. So Crowley himself was viewed as uh, ultra, you know, beyond the pale in terms of his background. He wasn't considered, you know, he was new money. So there was, a, there was an inbuilt sort of class um, distinction going on even back then. And I think some of the, some of the stick that Crowley took was very much from the old money people. Who's this charlatan coming along, you know, with his new money and his new ideas? It's all very much related to the British class system. And the British class system is sort of shot through the whole of the occult. Or, and, and this is what I'm talking about, in the sense that when we think of the occult, everybody thinks of Crowley, everybody thinks of Parsons, everybody thinks of maybe, you know, modern times of Bikino, wouldn't it? And, you know, or Lavelle. And when you think about it, they're all white middle-class males. And the women tend to be sidelined. I mean, the woman who did all the artwork for the original, I think it's the Ryder Thwaite um, tarot card, uh, tends to be, she's a footnote. I mean, now we're coming back, I know, but she's sort of just lost in the, you know, the milieu of it all going on. And it's like the occult only exists in Northern Europe and America. Well, of course it doesn't, does it? No. Exactly. I mean, the, the, you know, the Santeria, you know, there's a million different strands from all around the world, which you would call, you know, our cult traditions. The, 
the Aboriginal Dreamtime is an occult tradition. In the same way that the North American Plains Indians have an occult tradition in the terms of their spirit work walking, etc., and all that sort of thing. So you've got this sort of like uh, this sort of mantle over the whole of your cult, as far as most people we sort of come into contact with, is from a white middle class point of view. And it sort of disparages um, uh, the sort of tribal um, people. And it's almost like these people were in touch and still are in touch very much with what you might call the others, whatever you want to call weirdness, if if you like. And many of these cultures didn't need to write. And for me, words will never be able to describe an experience fully. They're a vehicle to help describe it. But it's one of those things that if you've ever had an experience with the weird, with the others, you can never put it into words for another person. All you can find is another person who's had a similar experience and you just have this sort of link instantly if you start talking about it because you both understand something which is beyond the words. Yeah. And yet when you look at the occult, it's all about words. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely weird. You know what I mean? It's all about ceremony. Were uh, the way the way it's particularly performed, but the truth is, it's probably kids fifteen, sixteen years old in the Amazon at this point in time today who've got more so who are more savvy about what's going on with the weird and the occult than ninety nine point nine nine percent of people involved in the occult in north you know in northern Europe and America because oh. we. we We've, we've sort of been dragged away from it for so many centuries. We're sort of finding our way back to a tradition, yeah. which we've always had. We've always... Sorry, go on. So I was going to say, I kind of noticed that, like, um, personally, like, I noticed, like, a lot of people have been using ayahuasca, and, like, shamans have been giving people that from, you know, certain uh, mm. places. And it's like, I feel like some people are like kind of bastardizing it a little bit by, you know, abusing it or manipulating it. And it's like, kind of like you say, that class system, you know, um, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, really I'm new in, to this stuff. No, I agree. And I think there's a sort of lack of respect, I think is what you mean, isn't it? About the way they take, sometimes they take this, uh, take these things. It's like, um, it goes with the birthing blanket, and it goes with the nose flute, and it goes with the what you call it. Well, no. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> this is just accoutrements. <laughs> the IQ is, well, you put you in that space. And if you, if you disrespect that space, you will, probably have a, you will probably have an experience you don't really enjoy. And that's something that I think, you know, that, that whatever tradition you use, it's about respect. Exactly, and, and and it's like um, I always like you know one of the things several of us joke about is the Skinwalker Ranch, that TV series. It's like let's pick three or four of the most inappropriate people in the world <laughs> to study this, and maybe that's right in a way. But in another way, I'm sitting there thinking, 
these guys just haven't got a clue. <laughs> these guys just are clueless about this. And, and to a certain extent, you get what you put in. I think if you go looking for demons or whatever it is, you know, Godhead, you will find it. Because it is, to a certain extent, a reflection of ourselves. Oh, it's yeah. always from within. You know, we are part, we're not, you know, bystanders in this experience. We are part of the experience. We help create the experience. I mean, it's that, it comes back to that quantum thing again, isn't it? The moment you study something, it changes. And it's like I say, there's a sort of, there's a sort of subconscious meme in the occult sometimes, I think, where people seem to think that it's like 24-7 sort of helpline <laughs> where all these sort of deities, whatever you want to call them, demons, deities, angels, I don't mind, you know, pick, a, pick whatever you want, are sort of manning a 24-7 cosmic helpline for the human race. <laughs> it's like, no, no, not really. Consider this. If there are other intelligences, they probably have lives. <laughs> they probably, you know, yeah. they have jobs. <laughs> I don't know. But I sometimes think that we need to think about it more. Stop treating them like... Uh, people tend to either treat them as pets, talk to them like pets, or they treat them as something which is so far in advance of us that you just turn into a... It's a bit like meeting, you know the most famous person who you really admire and turn into a gibbering wreck, you know, so, oh, oh, I really <laughs> you know, totally. It's a bit like that. But I think if we're going to have some sort of, we need to have a dialogue. I'm looking for dialogue. I'm looking to learn. I, I mean, I, I'd like to know what, uh, what do you think of us? Are we weird to you? Do, you, do we freak you out? Do you, do you tell your kids? about these horrible humans that will come and steal you away in the night. Because that, to me, seems the logical conclusion to much of what we're talking about with the call, is that we're talking about another intelligence that is non-human. And I think if you go back, the Celtic traditions, the Norse traditions, if you go back to Northern Europe, I think before we actually really did write a lot, if any, um, we seem, to, we seem to be more in touch with it. We seem to understand it more and accept it as part of our lives in a sort of more open-handed way. I don't think it was seen as this... Again, it comes to this word elitist. I, I mean, if you think about it, if you're one of the others, what is your experience of the last 150 years of mankind? And with take from Northern Europe and America, it's mostly middle-aged blokes <laughs> asking for favours. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, what? And it's like, why? I mean, you know, with Crowley, you know, the best of intentions, I suppose, you know, Crowley summoned, when Crowley did the major um, invocation, he was trying to summon people to fight evil on Earth, as he saw it. And that's like, you know, that's, I'm thinking, well, so the first thing you do when you contact these people is diplomacy to fight a war on your behalf. And I'm thinking, well, why? <laughs> why, not just talk to them? why not just talk to these intelligences and see what we have in common first? Because maybe they're bad for us. I don't know. This is what I'm saying. 
my experience is primarily good and it's primarily comes from the sort of stupid end of the weird if you like it's the silly little things in my life that continually sort of like trick me up you know and every time i think oh yeah there's nothing to it something daft happens and i'm back you know um, yeah. so i look at other people's experiences and, and i'm struggling you know i look at it and thinking no i can see that you you've kind of had Oh, it's a traumatic experience. Let's let's be honest. Some people have severely traumatic experiences when contacting, and you know uh, sometimes they intend to do it, sometimes they don't intend to do it. But I after, but I think it's often, but I think in the end, it's often driven by what you're seeking for yourself. If you're sort of wrapped in vampire legends. Deep to the sort of darkness of it all, the chances are that's what you'll find. Because you, you're sort of you're second guessing what you believe the occult is. I, I think you know if you go looking for demons, you will find demons. And of course, demons can mean uh, the modern version. What most people think of is meaning by the way demon it doesn't actually mean that it, it's basically really another term for an angel it's just a you know it's become to mean something uh, it, it's got a pejorative meaning over the years in the same way that um things like cherubs you know the little kids they're always portrayed as little children with wings if you go back to the original cherubs they were hideous little demons they didn't look like that at all yeah and I'm the same say- i mean classic one you think about it is people talk about angels if you see most pictorial descriptions of an angel what do you see you see a gorgeous woman with very long hair with wings don't you yeah now name me one female angel in the bible there isn't one (laughs) they're all male That anyone's name, they're all male, they don't even talk about female angels. So that's become, you know, that's people are expected to see something that has no basis, really. It's what people want to see. And this is what we come about, you know, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to religion. As we're in life within politics and everything in society, People want to guide you to what they think is good for them. The people in power, you know, pretty successful people, whatever, you know. Um, and again, it's, it's like they're trying to coach you into believing what they believe rather than allowing you to have the experience of whatever it is. And it could be the craziest thing in the world. You know, I for years I used to struggle with the whole thing, you know, do you know the Philip K. Dick excuses was pink? But, um, it was the colour pink, it was like a light. And I remember thinking, what a weird thing. And then later you realise, no, that's not, that's not strange really at all. It's no stranger than an angel. It's just the way it manifested itself to a him. Mm-hmm. So there's no right or, uh, you know, there's no real right or wrong. That's not to do, that's not to do people with traditions. Um, but when you talk about, the, you know, say the tradition of witchcraft, um, 
What tradition? I, how many riches do you know? I mean, I, I grew up in the night, you know, 60s and 70s. And all the riches, people I would call riches I knew back then were just very normal, were very normal people who just had a particular meant for something. The first witch I ever met was a typically 40-something housewife who bought my friend's wart off him that he'd had on his thumb ever since I'd known him. We were, we were 10 years old at the time, and he'd had this wart on his thumb ever since I'd known him. And she just walked up, she was from the local estate that he lived on. I were walking one day, and she just walked up to him, bent, said, oh, excuse me, and she offered him a penny and said, can I give you a penny for that wart of yours? And he like looked at him and said, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, stupid, bit mad, you know, strange. <laughs> and two days later, I think it was two, three days later, the wart fell off and he was asleep. <laughs> so, and I, we asked about who this woman was, because it was, you know, quite unusual. He'd had it for five or six years. And um, everyone, oh, she's like, well, she's like the local, I suppose you call her a witch, wise woman. You know, that was... Nobody wanted to call her a witch. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's what they meant. And there was a woman lived over the road from me who used to do readings and uh, a lot of sort of psychic stuff. And you'd sneak it in there uh, like they were embarrassed, you know. But and, and, and what always amazed me about her was, not so much what she said was, was she had a dog, this gorgeous collie dog. And he used to sleep in the middle of the main road. <laughs> and he never got run over. And I used to think that was just pure magic, that this dog used to go to sleep in the middle of the road. And the cars would be going past him, and he'd just be fast asleep in the middle of the road. And he never got run over at all. I remember thinking, well, that's magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever she does is interesting, but that, that's incredible. That the dog just doesn't freak out, it just lies there. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> Kind of a weird thing to remember, but you know, it comes to day. But again, it comes back to this that it was there was no sort of um, great learning to it. It was part of life. The, 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 it's part of what the accoutrements of a life that you lead lead you into this sort of avenue where you can help other people. And this is what the, you know. This is my memory. Of those witches and they had nothing to do with Wicca or Gardner or any of those or Crowley or any of those people they were just of a tradition that goes back in say in the UK that's about well thousands of years I mean the, 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 it's it's like it's open to everybody it's completely inclusive and by sort of, you know, don't act as a gatekeeper. Let people come to, you know, uh, uh, and if they get off on the like, great God's awkward, great. That's their thing. If that's what they relate to, if that's what's revealed to them, well, that's what's revealed to them. Don't try and second guess what somebody else's experience might be. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson people in the occult is such a, because we're, we're talking about stuff that's still unknown. We're just dipping our toes back into the water. I think if you go back, certainly if you go back four, three, four thousand years, particularly in Northern Europe, I think they, um, I think they were very much more in touch. Somebody once described it as like, uh, um, there seems to be a time when with the pineal gland in the, 
the human pinion would run that it almost like a cosmic Wi-Fi that we were connected on a kind of daily basis. And we lost that. We lost that ability. And we sort of like, uh, it's like something that we did as teenagers that were slightly embarrassed about that we thought might be bad, but now we look back at it, no, it wasn't. It was actually, we were learning. And I think we were more cohesive, maybe even as a society, because of that. Because I think people, I think people were less paranoid overall. Oh, a hundred percent. I think it comes down to, like I say, it's, it's this gatekeeping thing that, that, that people want to sort of, oh, I want you to believe this. I want you to believe that. I, I, you know, Crowley was just as guilty of this as anybody else. Which is kind of interesting because by the end of his life, Crowley pretty much said, well, actually, it's all really a pile of bollocks. It's down to intent. Even Crowley himself said that. It's 99% intent. And it doesn't matter what, how you dress it up, what ceremonies you go through. In the end, it's what comes from you. Will, will, um, the experience will be controlled by that to a large extent. I mean, so from that point of view, I just, I just want people to, to to not be scared. If something weird happens, there's no reason to be scared of it. Embrace it and see if that takes the edge off it for a start. Because there's this this sort of ingrained into our um, psyche over the last couple of thousand years because of monotheistic religions of all sorts. Be it Buddhism, be it Christianity, be it Islam, or be it Judaism, they're all sort of top down in terms of the in terms of how they're thought. Even though the messages of the people they stand from are anything but that, so it, 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 it's like the system. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm not trying to sound like a revolutionary here, but the system is scared. <laughs> Well, no, because there is undoubtedly the system is scared of people finding their own way. No, because I agree. When find, you know what I mean? when people find their own way, the funny thing is, generally, I find you tend to agree with others. You know, you come to sort of common consensus over things, and common consensus is not good for business <laughs> in the end. I mean, we live in a capitalist world, so that's the reality of it. And it's only now that that people are looking at the capitalist system and saying, hang on a minute, we're killing the world <laughs> for the sake of a few bucks in the end. And that old, I mean, it's a cliche now, isn't it? But that old um, Native American epithet about when will we learn that you can't eat money? You can't eat and drink money. It's as simple as that. That sooner or later people are going to realise that. That you know, um, it's got a bit of spiritual side, but we have a physical side. We have to deal with. It, we have to cope with in this world. And it, it's it's like it's just it's there in layers all the time. That's what I'm trying to get across. But we sometimes forget just how programmed we are, and the occult is about deprogramming, not repro, not not reprogramming. I mean, if you see what I mean, the reprogramming comes from yourself. 
the account, from my experience, allows you to deprogram from what you thought you knew about the existence we live in. And that, to me, is probably the biggest thing. It's probably the biggest revelation you probably you might ever get in your life that things are infinitely nuanced. And that, I think, one of the things that I think we've learned from four years, you know, from watching Trump for four years is, is no nuance. Everything's like, everything is just either yes or no. And it doesn't work, does it? Because all you do is create conflict when you live in a world where it's just yes or no. And that's what I mean. You can't tell people yes or no in the occult because we don't know. If we're being honest, we're all psychonauts, we're all we're all travellers, and we're all just as, we're all naive, really, about it. You meet people from time to time who really do seem to have a handle on it, and it's brilliant. I love that. It's amazing to meet somebody like that. But often you realise that you couldn't be like that because you're not them. Their life experience, their makeup is completely different to you. So don't expect what works for them to work for you. Find what you feel comfortable with. And don't let other people tell you what you should, how you should. That's basically, that's really what it comes down to. It seems to me to be sort of um, oxymoronic for anybody in the occult to try and tell somebody else how to do it, if you see what I mean. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean it's pointless reading Crowley Gardner, uh, Israel, I'm sorry. It doesn't, I'm not saying don't read them, but when you do, bear in mind they're not you, you're not them. Take from their knowledge. But apply it to your circumstance. Because, you know, these people were born in a different time. And they were reading, they were claiming to be reading from, you know, tracks that go back a couple, you know, the Kabbalic tradition really started. I think it, uh, there's arguments, but I think it's about 500 AD, often it's quoted. So they, they were reading stuff that was a thousand, you know, came from the tradition of a thousand years anyway. So it's like they had no real connection, no real feel for the people who actually wrote those original sort of texts. Because that's what suited them in 500 AD. What suits us in 2021 is something completely different. I mean, there's a core there which is always going to be the same. But the way you approach it has to take into account your circumstance. And we live in a world that's bombarded continually with um, imagery in a way that those people weren't. They lived in a natural world where um, even time, to a certain extent, was was elastic. You know, uh, do you know that the candles used to, when they used to have these candles that used to be sectioned into hours? Well, the hours were different lengths. So the early hours, wee hours, were often shorter, and then like the daylight hours were longer. Which sounds crazy, I know, but it's the way they work. But when you think about that, we don't live like that. I mean, it's only 150 years since we actually nailed time, which kind of seems incredible, doesn't it? That 150 years ago, 
even in the UK, if it was eight o'clock in the morning in London, it was 20 past eight in Bristol. And it was only the invention of the railway where suddenly everybody in the UK had to have the clocks at the same time. So it's only become standardized in the last 150 years, even that time has only become standardized in that sense, in the way that we relate to each other in different parts of the world. So you have to take this into account when you're reading anything which goes back. These people, whilst being at the core, they're exactly us. And they have the same, you know, I have no doubt they have the same gripes, the same attitudes. I mean, the old joke about supposedly one of the oldest pieces of graffiti ever found is kids today. I think it's Sumerian, and they basically says kids today got no respect for their elders, which is, you know, <laughs> just shows you nothing ever changes. No, it really doesn't. But, mm, but the context of it all is completely different. We live in a world, uh, the, the one big difference is electromagnetic fields. We're surrounded by them in a way they never were. And electromagnetic fields seem to have some connection to the occult and the others and UFOs. Like I say, if if you look at the if you look at the birth of modern ufology, the first abduction case the first abduction case we can find is from eighteen fifty six in Wales, and that's five years after the telegraph was invented. And then you get the the invention of the telephone and radio and it's airships. And then suddenly we develop radar and it's UFOs. And it seems to go hand in hand. And it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because the occult and science seem to be completely at odds with each other in the modern mind. But John Dee was a scientist before he was the occultist. Uh, Nostradamus was a, was a doctor. Nostradamus, everybody talks about his prophecies. But one thing everybody forgets about Nostradamus was Nostradamus realized the um, link between cleanliness and disease. And um, because there was a plague, I think, he lost his, I think he lost his wife and his child to the plague. But he realized that back then. So you've got this sort of um, uh, vast sort of history which we are the culmination of at this moment in time. And whilst we should be always be sort of like respectful of that, we're moving forwards. We can't go back. We're always moving into the future. I, I think sometimes people forget uh, there's a lot of sort of naval guys in the back of the past. But it's gone. We can't change it. And we can't rebuild. Uh, you know, we can pine for a simpler life. But the reality is in the modern world, it's not going to be that simple. Not everybody can go and live in the mountains. You know what I mean? It's great if you can. Really cool. Great. Go do it. But don't forget the kids who've got to live, you know, in the tenements. The kids who live in the cities, in the apartments. They're just as important. And they can't, you know, I feel, you know, they can't just go and sit under a tree and chill because there isn't the tree there to chill under. So, you know what I mean? Don't, don't ever think that 
you know, spirituality can only be found in the wild, can only be found in the... Spirituality can be found in the most crazy places. You know what I mean? I, I'm sure, I've spoken to people who've had experiences, you know, um, quite often near-death, you know what I mean, but people have had a sort of near-death experience or very close shave. Mm-hmm. I don't mean they've been injured. I'm not talking about where people have actually been injured. The way you've they've like had an incident whereby sort of ten seconds after that, did you just realise? Blimey, I just came within inches of being killed there. You know, whether it uses obviously with that it's in a car, isn't it? So sort of but the problem is when you're driving a car, you can't reflect on it because if you do, then you have another, then you do have an accident. So sort of so again. Be aware of that the people don't have often have the time to assimilate what happens to them in the same way that people did a couple of hundred years ago, and I think that's really what the occult is about. It's assimilating experiences outside the norm into our normal lives, and the hidden part of it that just plays into ego, doesn't it? The whole idea that you're some sort, you know, uh, some little cult and you know better than everybody else. That part of it, I have no interest in it. Because I think all traditions have their good parts and probably have the bad parts. But, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's Santeria, it doesn't matter whether it's Voodoo, it doesn't matter whether it's any, anybody's tradition. Um, you know, there will be good, there's bits that you can take from it. And when people talk about cultural appropriation, what does that mean? Cultural appropriation. If you see something which comes from, seemingly comes from another culture in your quest, does that make it any less genuine? I don't think it does. I mean, I've had people, I've had one friend, and uh, all the stuff they get seems to be from South America, and yet they've got no connection to South America at all. But every time they get sort of taken away or they have a full-on sort of experience, it's all sort of um, Mesoamerican sort of symbolism. That's what they see. Well, you know, you can't tell that person, no, you can't do that because you're not from that part of the world, because that's what happens to them. You know, they don't choose that. That's just the way it chooses to reveal itself to them. And it's, it's taken them down an interesting path. You know, but don't get me wrong, they have sort of expanded and looked at these things, and they have found, oh, right, um, I can't remember, uh, it's the leopard, I'm not a part of the American, but um, there's a leopard, there's a leopard god from one of the traditions, I think it's a Mayan tradition. I call him ex Bali, but it's a uh, Cibalanke, I think is how you pronounce it. Ah, oh, right. Oh, don't ask me. <laughs> Sorry. I play a lot of Smite video games, so like I'm like a mythology nut. Oh, um, right. Fair play to you because I've never been able to. I still can't pronounce the right <laughs> Is it Ioxa? <laughs> but you see what I mean? So. What's the point in saying cultural appropriation when my friend from Nottingham, in fact, in the UK, keeps having these visions which are all about South America? And he's never been. They've never been. <laughs> they don't really, you know, they don't really have an interest in going. 
But when they've sort of been out there in those moments, that's what comes to them. That's what they see. So explain that. But that's obviously there's something somewhere that seeks to communicate to him in that particular manner. So let it in. Go with it. Uh, you know, the, the, it's not, it's the whole thing about it, isn't it? But subject, you've got to try and, really the key is to try your best to subjugate your ego, to allow the experience to happen to you without being scared. And when you look at a lot of ceremony, it's setting yourself up to do something without fear, isn't it? Because it's, oh, I'm protecting myself. But sometimes I think the greatest protection is an open mind in these circumstances. Mm. If you just let it happen and don't prejudge it. I mean, I've got a, I have a couple of mates who their experience with the others, the occult side of life, it's quite sort of scary. It is, you know. I mean, I, I think to myself, how would I feel about it all if I had their experiences? And it's an interesting question. I mean, they're still fascinated, but there's has a sort of there is a sort of darker element to it, uh, and you sort of tip it into the um, almost into people have abduction experiences. It's 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 a, not as um, extreme. It's, they don't have full on. Don't get me wrong. They don't have full on abduction experiences at all. But their experiences are, are seemingly be something which is quite scary. Has an edge to it that mine doesn't. I can't honestly say it does. There, there are times maybe I wish it would because mine's sort of. I feel, I suppose I feel a bit like what people call a hedge witch or a kitchen witch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know what I mean? It's because it is generally totally benign. But kind of like reminds me from time to time, you know, don't forget, kid, word shit really exists, you know. And it's that, <laughs> that sort of level. I, I mean, I've had, I've had, somebody asked me about this a couple of weeks ago. And the most scared I've ever been in my life was in a place, and there was nothing there. It was on it was in the north coast of Cornwall, and uh, we visited the, the four of us, and we found this cove on the north coast of Cornwall. And we all sort of walked down the pathway to this cove. As we're sitting at the bottom of the cove, I looked around to my friend. So I'm surprised nobody's ever built a village here because there's fresh water, there's a harbour. And about 30 seconds later, I just had a complete little panic attack. I, I just had to get out of there. I just looked at my friend and said, sorry, I've got to go. And I just legged it. I literally ran back up the, ran back up the sort of hill away from that place. And that's the nice scare. That was just completely freaked me out. It was like there was something about that place that I felt completely uncomfortable with. And the other three people I was with didn't feel a thing. There was nothing. They didn't pick it. They was all, you all right? Are you okay, Steve? What's wrong? I'm so sorry, but that place just completely freaked me out. And that's the most scared I've ever been in my life in terms of, because I had no explanation for it. You know, other times, 
might have been scared. It's because there's something to be genuinely scared of, usually, you know. Yeah. You're in a sticky situation. There was that. It was a peaceful day. It was, quite, it was winter, but it was quite warm. Um, it was, the sea was gorgeous. And I'm, I'm quite possible, I can quite open to the idea that I was picking up on some sort that the waves were creating a sub-frequency. And I was, you know, the, that I was just, you know, I just picked it up and my friends didn't, or I happened to be in the place where it was the most prevalent. So I, it triggered my flight and fright response. I can accept that. That could possibly be it. But I also look back and think, in terms of Cornwall, all the coves which are habitable are have, have inhabitants. That one doesn't. All there is is an abandoned abandoned stone hut about halfway down between the cliff path and the cove. And that's all there is. So I don't think it's just me. I think other people don't feel comfortable there either. I, I think that's one of those liminal spaces. It, 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 it's just thin, what the Celts call the thin place. Okay. And that's, again, thin places are open to all. There's no badge on the floor. You don't have to have a badge. You don't have to have a right handshake. You don't have to have the right clothes. You don't have to say the right words. They're open to everybody. And the elitist part comes for me, the elitist thing is because they don't want people investigating stuff like that for themselves. Because particularly the military, politics and military, people go into it because they tend to be control freaks. They like to know the answer to everything. And their cult is an open book. It doesn't often have answers. And often those answers that you do get are not the ones you were looking for in the first place. So if you've got a sort of bent for controlling things, it's not fruitful. It's not a great relationship. You, you will, people will have problems with it. And when you look at it, most of the people who tell, most of the people who sort of diss the occult and warn people against it are people who want to control the way you think about it. A hundred percent. Politicians, the military. You know, the, 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 I, I, I think the whole UFO paranormal occult thing, the, one of the problems the military has with it is, is, is it just seems to be like, it, it seems to revel in the trickster tradition with the, with, the, with the military. The whole of the occult just seems to love to run around in rings and get them nowhere and just frustrate the hell out of them because it's the one thing they really dislike. <laughs> you know, it's like um, you know, I've got the biggest, you know, we've got the best aircraft in the world, and then this little blob of a light just flies around it and freaks it out, you know, and, and cuts all your systems out. And it's just like that. I just look at it, and to me, that's just they're ragging you, they're ragging on you. Uh, the, the others, the, whatever you want to call them, you know the whole ufo thing it's like it genuinely does have a serious trickster element to it um even down to um one of the good friend of mine matt uh we joke about it that there was an incident in 1977 with a, a guy in 
uh, Essex, Haymote, which is suburb of London. Uh, saw a guy in a spaceman's costume who said, Oi, doing sort of thing, and then disappeared. And it's like, that's trickster. That's pure trickster, isn't it? And that's what people are getting comfortable with. And it's one of the things that's happened is monotheistic belief systems have turned tricksters into the devils. Mm -hmm. Well, if you actually go back and read, the trickster is the one who reminds the gods and humans that um, nobody's infallible. The trickster is there to remind us that we're not, we're not infallible. And sometimes they can be seemingly quite nasty, but by and large, it's pretty benign. They're, they're really just showing you that life is a mystery and that there are certain parts that we'd probably never be allowed to see. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, so don't let other people try to push you where you don't feel comfortable. Go with what speaks to you inside. And, yeah, by all means, if you find you're attracted to, yeah, don't get me wrong. Crowley was a very intelligent bloke. Not least because he was one of the first rock stars. It, when you look at Crowley, um, you're looking at Marilyn Manson, you're looking at Rob Zombie. No different. He played, he played the media, and what most people forget is, is, is the media only started writing bad things about Crowley after Crowley didn't have any money, so he couldn't afford to sue them. So, so they could print stuff knowing that he couldn't afford to take, he couldn't afford to take him to court, which is quite another key thing because that was really happening in the 1930s. <laughs> so, so I'm not saying that. These people, people, there are some great teachers, I'm sure, you know, and there's some great, great works. But for me personally, my go-to book on philosophy for everything is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. <laughs> I love it. But that to me, because it just makes sense. There's a beautiful part in what I think it's one of the Dirk and the Holistic Detective. I think it's, or is it? No, it's one of the later Hitchhiker's books where it starts off with, um, talks about how a kiosk in, a, in, in an airport exploded. And Adams says, the one thing that no human ever considered was was a chaos exploded simply because it could. That to me sums it all up. Essentially, we're on this incredible journey, and at the end of it, hopefully, there is some sort of payoff in terms of the knowledge we acquire as a, as a race, as a, as a human race, that will be a, that will be of eternal use to us, and to a certain extent, I think, that will free us from certain. From certain fears we have as humans, because I think in the end, most of it's about fear, isn't it? 100%. Definitely, yeah, you know, 
people afraid of dying more than anything else. Most of sort of religious traditions are about preservation of, you know, I mean, when you go back to the Egyptians with the mummification, uh, you know, they, they were sort of like it's all about the afterlife and where you go afterwards. But remember, we don't know whether it's an afterlife, we don't know all that sort of thing. So live for the moment, experience life today. And if you get off from reading, if it comes from reading books, if it comes from just sitting there thinking to yourself, great, that's the way to do it. That's what works for you. If you're not harming anybody else, do it. That's, a, that's the key. That's the key message to the whole of the weird, the occult. I mean, like a friend with the bricks. That's brilliant. You know, I love that. It's just absolutely superb. But they're sort of, the way they relate to phenomenon is through bricks. That's absolutely bloody amazing. I love that. That's just so unique as well because it's them. And, and in the end, it's all about that essence of you that makes you an individual is important. Mm-hmm. But the collective experience is what we learn from. Yeah. Once we come together, we can all sit and talk about it and, uh, and you know, I have a particular experience that I thought was quite common, and it turns out it's quite with nobody else's on it. And I'm like, oh, right, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, well, there you go. <laughs> and, Do you mind going sure, your experience? Well, it's kind of a weird one because three times in my life I've woken up and from a dream where I'm basically having the most amazing sex with what is this silver female, um, I guess, spirit. And it's that intense that when I wake up, my hips are moving and I'm covered in sweat. And it's happened three times this person has come to me in a dream and each three times it's like I woke up and you know sometimes when you wake up and you're sort of like you're immediately sort of awake yeah you're not sort of like oh so you're just completely snapped on and you just set up you're like wow that was weird <laughs> yeah, well that's what's happened every three times and I, now I thought that was probably quite it was a pretty common experience for men or women as well you know I'm sure women have the same sort of experience but speaking to Several people who sort of interested in deep interest into that sort of that side of things, they just no, no. As people said, oh, that sounds like a succubus, which it probably does. You know, it sounds like it's the classic prescription of the succubus. But you see, this is the thing with me: it's that when it's happened, it's been a completely positive experience. I'd be lying if I say it was anything different. It was like an incredibly intense sort of. The while it was occurring in the dream, it was like it was like I was awake and dreaming at the same time. But then I did wake up, if you know. So I know I was definitely asleep. It wasn't like a waking dream. Um, but it was, it, but there you go. And why I don't know. So but was that not, lucid dreaming then that you're having? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm in a complete dream state, and it happens. And the funny thing is, I'm not a great dreamer. I, do, I rarely dream. Uh, yeah do you tend to remember the ones that you actually have uh very rarely but uh 
like when they're very significant or like very fucked up, I usually remember them. Like I have one oh, detailed oh. out where like I dreamed of this girl with like long waving hair. And then I think I attributed that to like I, I forget it's one of the junkie terms, either my anima or my an- animus. Mm-hmm. Um but it was like she was trying to attack a boy that was faceless and like push him off of the stairs and, and I reached out and grabbed him and then she all of a sudden like yelled in my face like and her face changed and it was like really crazy. And I'm like, all right, let's un- analyze this. And I think in that Jungian sense, it was like integrating the shadow and all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think like she was trying to kill like a part of me like that like I'm trying to hold on to or something. Mm-hmm. I don't really know, mm-hmm. but it was like just that whole experience. And then it was and like... Also, and also that we are both male and female. Yeah. That you know, the whole gender thing at the moment, people started to finally talk about it. Is is that you know, um, males have part female, and females have part male in them. And it's uh, one thing. I, one thing I, I did go through when I was younger. When I was younger, when I was in my twenties, um, I kind of made peace with the other side of me, and I was like gifted a vision on acid. That was the most incredible thing. And it was like I touched the very essence of femininity in a weird sense. Mm. Uh, and, and that sort of, that's the one experience in my life that did change me. That I, I, will, I will honestly say that the person who went into that experience was different to the person who came out of it. And I would say in a positive manner. But, I, you know, it didn't, you know, it didn't make me a better person. It just made me sort of like I felt more connected to myself. So you know, uh, we're coming up on an hour here, but do you want to keep going on? I'm really enjoying this conversation. Well, if you don't mind, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's keep going because talking about that, I kind of had that experience. Um, I'm really bad with like pronunciation of words, but it was like the conversion into the other is like this common term within Jung. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that experience that I also had, like, too, you know? And then, so, I've been having, like, these, like, very conscious of certain thoughts. Like, I always have, but it's never really registered as, like, a voice in my head. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, like, just being hyper-conscious of my thoughts and not, like, putting them out there. And it's kind of like listening to Chris's podcast with, uh, you know, Void Jazz. And hearing them talk to uh, Mary, the shaman, it's like all of that stuff makes sense. And it's with, that's something too with going on in America where we have people like, you know, the Q shaman taking appropriation type stuff. And it's like Mm. where he puts the headdress on, that's where it becomes an issue in the culture. And that's like appropriation instead of appreciation. And that's kind of, yes, yes. Yeah. Where it's not out of respect and reverence, it's more of, I'm just going to wear it and be obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's like, yeah. don't be a fucking douchebag, dude. Like, for real. Because when he does that shit, I can't be, like, out here saying the same things. But, like, my experiences, like, have, like, my boss introduced me to, like, Power of Myth with 
Mm-hmm. Uh, like the whole the mini doc with Bill Myers and uh, Joseph Campbell. And somebody warned me, like, that's revolutionary. And I'm like, but it's like, you know, uh, six episodes an hour long or 45 minutes long. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big chunk to sit down and watch. Mm-hmm. But like when you start working your way through it, you're like, this is applicable to today. Like, and then it covers like it covers that conversion of the other where like the Brahma is, you know, male, female and androgynous at the same time. Mm, yes, yes, yes. And transcendental of all things. And so is like and then I get into like all this mythology and so is <clears throat> with Egyptian. So is uh Amun, which is sometimes Amen, and everybody ends the prayer with Amen. So it's like yeah, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's like everybody's arguing over the same thing. And it goes back to like I always had this conscious thought, like the Tower of Babel. You know, the creator mm-hmm. splits everybody up and we're all arguing over, you know, the alpha and the omega. It's everything, you know, and mm-hmm. it's that spirituality element. But then I feel like it gets corrupted, obviously, by greed and stuff like that. And mm. in, in my uh, sense. And it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because greed in itself is an abstract. And yet we accept that exists. I mean, nobody would argue with you that somebody can be greedy, and yet it's an abstract, isn't it? It doesn't actually mean anything. You can define it in a way that we understand it, but it doesn't actually make it real in a sense, if you see what I mean. Greed can take so many forms, can't Oh, it definitely can. Like, everybody has their vice that I feel like they need to, like, put that addiction towards. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's that greed, find, that drive, yeah. and it's finding something which is relatively benign, which doesn't doesn't hurt other people to be greedy about. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like, yeah, which is kind of. A, I mean, other people are just looking at you going, "What?" Well, <laughs> 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 but it's like you know, um, I did. I went with a friend called uh, Richie to uh, Bella's now. With the lockdown and everything, the only place I've been outside of my hometown was on uh, the summer solstice because things had sort of slightly eased off by then. So we thought we'd get away with it. We went to Bellows Nap, which is a old tomb. It's a long barrel on top of a ridge in uh, Worcester. I think it's in Gloucestershire. Yeah, it's Gloucestershire. Uh, I'm 62. And... I spent a lot of the time in the 1980s on the free festivals in the UK, so Stone Circles, you name it. I, I, you know, I've been in just about any state you can imagine it in Stone Circle. <laughs> and over the years, my impression was that even on some, some, some quite deep trips I had in these places, there was like almost like a, a dispassionate observation of what we're up to these days. That they, the, 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 the powers that gather in those places sort of have a, keeping, have a keeping watch for us, but they don't get involved. And last year, on the summer solstice, was the first time I ever felt that there was a presence, that was a current presence, that we weren't talking about something in the past. 
and that whatever it is that comes to, because they built those places in the thin places, whatever it was, it's sort of like sharing an interest in us again. Almost like you're on the right track, kids, keep on with it, sort of thing. We'll back you on this. And we might even come back and talk to you again. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, that probably sounds crazy to a lot of it, to people, to people, but I know what I mean by it. And I think a lot of other people do. Yeah. But, so, um, like, I'll kind of go ahead and keep going with my experience because, like, I feel like mm. definitely comfortable talking about it a little bit more now, definitely, like, with our conversation. Um, so, like, my name and my political affiliation are actually, like, the same number in the NAQ. Complete synchronicity. Like, <laughs> and I didn't even know about this stuff until I discovered Hellier. But I discovered Hellier because of people talking about synchronicities online. Ah, right. And I had found the term from getting into, like, spirituality and Buddhism stuff via Power of Myth. Mm-hmm. And... Like, when that person said, like, like this is revolutionary, it kind of led to an awakening moment under a full moon, and I'm like, you can't make this shit up. And then it's like, so one day, uh, the thought, Jesus was a Capricorn, pops in my head. I Google it. I find Chris out it's Christoph- a Chris Christopherson song. Mm. And the next day, it's his birthday. So then something similar happens where a thought popped into my head because of talking to Anthony, who I met through hell here, that uh, sympathy for the devil popped in my head because we're talking about two sides that just can never agree on anything and they constantly mm-hmm. fight. And he mentions the, um, or so I'm the sympathy for the devil. The next day it's Mick Jagger's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because I watched Power of Myth intermittently, um, numbers were kind of like my thing, like numerology, like seeing three mm-hmm. three and stuff like that, and different number, uh, you know, patterns and stuff like that. They're repeating numbers, which is I noticed was common mm-hmm. to some. Mm-hmm. It was like via that, but like it's, like it's weird that that led me to all this hellier and stuff like that, but I got into the spirituality groups and then I got chased out of that by the QAnon people because of how they like, they, they were like bullies. <laughs> I know like it was, but I never like argued back because like I was really, I've always been timid about things and it, it was kind of like a lot of my experiences. I had a spirit guide, like a lion say like, don't be afraid. And I'm like, but having these experiences, I'm like people like John Lennon and upshot, like, because of the things they talk about. You know what I mean? And those experiences. One thing thing you need to be comfortable with is that you upset people like that. You're doing it right. If those people sort of immediately sort of feel uncomfortable around you, I would say you're on the right track. Because they're fucked up. I mean, they really are fucked up. (laughs) That's true. I'm not going to say I feel sorry for them or pity or anything like that. Because a lot of the time, these people, it's out of fear. I, I don't understand living your life in fear. I just don't get that. And uh, I never have done. 
I also understand that many people's lives have been one of fear, and often for good reason. You know, kids grow up in abusive families, you know, I don't know if you're still talking about sexual abuse or physical abuse, but mental abuse is probably the worst. You know what I mean? Where I've got I've got one very dear friend who their parents basically just made him feel bloody worthless from the time they were born. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's incredibly damaging. It's incredibly powerful damage it does to people, you know, later in life. And you know, so from that from that point of view, if you're annoying them, you're doing the right thing. Because I think you I would say your very presence they just picked up on it. They could read it. They kind of they they, they kind of comes up on the radar. I, I'm a terror. I'm, I'm dreadful. I really am. I, I like taking trolls for a ride. <laughs> and, uh, See, I'm not like that. I'm, I, like, I haven't developed the full yeah, goblin yeah, style. I admit it. It's really bad of it. But if I was a terror, I'll, take, I'll just pick on a troll. And I'll just put loads of just ridiculous discordian quotes from <laughs> Principia Discordia. And they're like, you're weird. Oh, you've got it. You've got it wrong. It's well done. Congratulations, you finally hit the jackpot. <laughs> so, uh, I remember posting something about Donald Trump and getting attacked by calling, being called sick or something. But I got, I kind of dipped into that paranoia. Like, I, you know, you go down the rabbit hole and you get stuck in it. You got to come back out of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I got sucked into mm-hmm. that kind of rabbit hole on social media where I kind of, I went a little crazy. And like, I definitely remember I sent, like because of all this stuff, I sent, you know, I sent people messages, and I'm like, I probably shouldn't have sent those messages. Like, I'm like, don't create new religions and shit. Like, we don't need any more of that. But I didn't realize like that's what the occult was, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but I, then like I called out Christian or some Christian people for being God fearing instead of God loving, mm-hmm. and I immediately get got called sick. And the first thing. I've noticed in my like spirituality learnings over the last year is that if somebody says something about somebody else, like, like in condemnation, it's usually a reflection of them and just ignore it and move on. But that's just me personally. No, I agree. I agree. Um, my, my, the only people I would condemn are people who are trying to scam, you know, people who are trying to scam people that, you know, <laughs> yeah. because Particularly when people are reaching out for help in a genuine sense. So they're going to scam them when they're actually asking for help. It's just despicable as far as I'm concerned. You know, that's just, I just think that's just bad. It's just bad manners. Uh, those sort of people, are, yeah, yeah the, the, the sort of televangelists. I mean, I just look at that and think, how can anybody fall for that? How fucked up do you have to be to fall for that? You know, sort of. Yeah. I remember, if you remember, do you know the film, the original version of Repo Man? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, right. Well, the original version of that, his parents basically end up giving everything to the guy on the telly, the TV preacher. And they're two stoner, hippies sort of thing, and they fall for it. But, uh, but that, because we don't have that in the UK, you see. The UK was singularly different. To, to be overtly religious in the UK, basically people think you're mad. I was going to say, I have some friends in the UK and they are not religious. 
but seriously, people think you're off your head. I mean, going to church is considered a bit weird over here. Seriously, people think people going to church. The vast majority of people over here think going to church is a bit fucking strange. <laughs> <laughs> the latest figures are that over 60% of the population in the UK don't believe in God in any form, which is you know, quite high. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty high. Well, I mean, so one of my best friends from the UK um, is actually atheist, and I've told him, I'm like, man, you get this stuff more than the Christians do. Like, you get it all, and you're an atheist, mm. and you understand it all better than they do. And I'm like, but they don't see that, and that's what's awful. I'm like, because people don't talk enough. And it's kind of like that we were talking earlier with that spirituality thing where we're not talking to each other and it's a little bit of demonization, like, you know. Mm. Mm. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's like um, I'm a hybrid, seemingly, as far as I can work out, I'm a sort of hybrid sort of bell guy come Pictish from my sort of background. And I just seem to sort of, you know, um, for all the crap it goes through because of the, the, the connotations with the far right, the Norse thing talk, talks to me and the Celtic traditions talk to me, whether that's because that's where I'm from, but that just happens to be. Like I say, my friend, what talks to him is South American things. And he's got, like you said, they're sitting there going, well, I don't get this. It's all good. I'm going to have to investigate it because this is what keeps showing to me. You know, I'm sitting in a... I'm basically sitting in a house in Nottingham in the UK, and I'm getting me some American sort of revelations. It's like, wow, why? And we're back to that, you know, that we open up, let it come to you, see what happens. 100%. I agree too on that. Because, like, the best advice I I ever got was uh, enjoy life like it's a roller coaster. It's got the ups and downs, but, you know, Mm. try to make the best Mm. of it. And take the mm. good with the bad. And often we learn from bad experiences more than we learn from good experiences. Because often I think sometimes when we have good experiences, we tend to, we, sometimes we ignore the message that went with them. It's only looking back sometimes in retrospect, think, oh yeah, yeah, I really should have realized that at the time. You know, <laughs> That was a lesson in itself, but I was so full of kind of like enjoying it, uh, living in the moment. And again, it comes down to that thing that, there's nothing wrong with living in the moment and then reflect. And sometimes yeah. we reflect and then we live, other times we live in the moment. And both are equally as important. Whereas the sort of, the skeptics, the, the sort of, the pra- people who call themselves practical and practical, so they, they miss out on that. And it's like, a, but again, often that's about ego. Most of the people I come across are not true skeptics, but skeptics in the sort of silly sense of the word. It's about ego. It's like it hasn't happened to me, so it can't possibly happen to anybody else. And that's a crazy way of looking at the world. Yeah. I mean, people, so, that's kind of Randy's whole sort of thing was it hasn't happened to me, so it can't happen to you. What? <laughs> that's just mad. And when it comes to the whole thing about science needs repetition, no. One thing I have learned is, is, is that it's a unique experience. That whatever experiences you have will never be repeated in the same manner. Mm-mm. You can never you can never have 
you can never recapture that first feeling of the first time that you see something that opens your mind because it's happened. You can't go back to that. The next time something comes to you, it will feel different. There'll be a different feel to it. And you can't, you know what I mean? You can't, that doesn't sort of, that sort of conflicts with the way we view science. You know, and we need to sort of blend the two. Because, you know, science has done wonderful things for humanity, but also does some bad things. But but it can't be a god in itself. Because then that would just you just become a slave to another. And it doesn't make it, you know. It goes back to this thing, you know, the whole thing about the Enlightenment, you know, the clockwork universe. And then Niels Bohr comes along and goes, sorry, but the clockwork universe doesn't work. And Einstein retires because he can't handle it. Yeah. And that's fair enough. So, but, it, but isn't it incredible to think about? There are 16-year-olds alive today who probably have a better grasp of this whole thing than Einstein ever had at the height of his powers. That's, we've progressed. That's a serious progression in 100 years. That's one of the biggest progressions. We, we talk about technology, but we tend to forget about our understanding. And don't get me wrong, I think if you go back far enough, I think there are definitely societies all over the world I think the Aborigines in Australia, the First Nation in Australia, the whole Dreamtime thing, that is a beautiful combination of science, reality, and the spiritual. Because it, it, it's sort of, it, it's, it's completely elastic in the way that it works. It encompasses reality and unreality at the same time. And that's the bit that I think most people have the problem with, isn't it? Learning to live with reality and unreality as bookends. They yep. complement each other. Definitely. And that sort of, you know, people have that sort of, you know. <laughs> and then I know it's kind of the same way with that reality, but non-reality. It's like somebody will say something, you're like, no, that's not true at all. And you get really mad and you're like, well, okay. Like in retrospect, maybe I can see where they're coming from, you know, in a certain mm -hmm. way. I don't know how to explain it, but that's that's like kind of what I'm getting from that, you know? Exactly. exactly. I, I totally agree. I, I, it's a willingness to travel places inside your head that you maybe not be comfortable with and try to understand why you don't feel comfortable with it as much as anything else. It's, it's often about, you know, to a large extent, the occult is about self-analysis. One of the, uh, it's like, uh, do you, have you seen the film of Dark Side? Um, I have not. Oh, that's brilliant. That is so funny. I would recommend watching that, then go read some of the comments that people make about it. I won't ruin it for you. I won't ruin it for you. But um, if you go then read the comments that people make about the film, it's really funny. Because if you've got any understanding of the sort of like the occult, etc., etc., you'll see that film in a completely different light to most people who just think it's a horror film because it's not. It's not a horror film at all. It's the best film about the occult ever made. Mainstream, anyway. I'm sure there might be some obscure films, you know, made very specifically that sort of never get seen that are probably just as good. But in terms of the mainstream, 
I'm amazed they got away with it. I'm amazed anybody ever let make the film in the first place. <laughs> totally. But um, there's a companion piece to it because one of the actors is a guy called Steve Ram, and there's a guy called Shauna Ram who used to work with uh, the Discordians back in the He worked with uh, Ken Campbell, the playwright and actor. He was, he was uh, Robert Anton Wilson's good mate, English. Uh, he worked with him. And uh, he did his part of a documentary that's called uh, The Other Loch Ness Monster, which is on YouTube, that was made by the BBC in Scotland BBC about 20 years ago. And it's about Bolskin House, Boleskine House, or Bolskin, depending on the name it, Boleskine House. But that's a brilliant companion piece to a dark song because it explains part of the plot of dark song. But uh, so that's well worth a watch because it, 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 it's just nice if you've got an interest in the occult to see a film that's actually about the occult, not one of these stupid, insidious, ridiculous films. Sorry, they really annoy me. No, it's no problem at all. Conjuring and stuff like that, just it, we've gone backwards, we've gone back to the sort of Oh, you need a Christian to, to, to stay this crap. Oh, bro. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> if you think the demons, they're probably going to act like demons. They haven't considered that. You know, if you live in a dark house, it's like um, if, you know, you sit in a dark room with a red light in the middle in a basement, the vibe you're getting off that, the sort of stuff you're liable to see, it's going to be of that vibe. So if it's a bit weird, oh, surprise, surprise. Whereas if you're sitting in a woodland on a beautiful evening, you're not likely to, you, you'll get a completely different version of possibly the same entity or creature, if you want to call it that. You know, um, I think Bigfoot's a bit like that, isn't it? I think so. Some people, you know, Bigfoot experiences, some people completely benign, other people quite. Seem to sort of like Bigfoot doesn't like them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder if that's down to the people who have the experiences, if that's part of, you know, because um, I'm with um, Tim and all those people on the, where the, what happens where the footsteps end. But um, as much as we'd like Bigfoot to be a member of the Ape family that as yet is undiscovered. I have a feeling it's something slightly more than that in the end. Um, yeah, I'm thinking so too at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like in the same way that when I started with UFOs, I you know I started off thinking these were nuts and bolts craft which visit us from other things because life might be quite rare. So if anybody anybody else spots another intelligent species <laughs> I use parentheses around intelligent species they're able to try and if not contact them but at least observe them so that just seemed logical to me but you know as the years have gone by I, I'm open to any number of explanations for what the, what the whole phenomenon is about uh, it just seems to like almost love to sort of wind us up you know, it's like a huge wind-up. 
it's just like how you humans think you're so cool, but what's this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm interested. But my point is, I'm interested to meet people behind that. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I'll be that daft. I'll be that simple. You just taking pictures, and again, it comes back to this. If you have an open mind and try not to ex- expect too much, but just go with what experience comes to you. If it's a, an entity of some sort, talk to it like you would talk, like we're talking here. Yeah, exactly. You know, do, don't go through some sort of weird ceremony. You know, it's like um, as, a, as a musician, one of the most frustrating things is when people say, "Oh, you know." It was right, grumpy sound, so, you know. One of the worst things, I, I it's not just as a musician, but anybody who's involved with art or creating anything, the one thing that often hurts you the most is when you know you've had a stinker, like, that painting's dreadful. We did a dreadful gig today, right, right? and somebody comes up to you and says, it's the best gig I've ever been to. And you're thinking, <laughs> well, you're thinking we're a bloody awful tonight. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, to a certain extent, the occult is very like that. You don't, you know, if you come across an entity, remember they might be having a hard time. Maybe they're looking to talk to a human. Maybe they just want to talk to a human. So sort of that's where you've met them. We're always, the dynamic of it all is be open. Be open. Uh, and if it's a, Talking baboon, great, it's a talking baboon. I always <laughs> thought one of the best sort of um, uh, betrayals of a sort of spiritual experience is The Simpsons, the one with the, uh, the, the South American Chile, where uh, it's got Johnny Cash as his uh, spirit guide. Oh, shit. The, the coyote. But that's really well done. And I love the way they did the animation in that is how a lot of magazines used to illustrate the sort of Carlos Castaneda sort of stuff, sort of experiences in the 1970s and 1980s. The whole sort of way they draw that is if you read those magazines in the 70s and 80s and you watch that episode of The Simpsons, it's like, oh, right, whoever did this used to read those magazines. I'm trying to think what, oh God, I can't think what the magazine is called, Phenomenon or something. Ah, oh, used to get, it's a monthly magazine we used to get. But all the sort of illustrations look like that trip sequence that Homer has. And I love that after it, as in many people's cases, the one Homer's, you know, the, the eternal idiot, he realizes that the Pyramid that he climbed to the top of, and all the things. It's just the golf course. <laughs> and it's only when, it's only when uh, the, uh, the the coyote spirit animal, as he's thinking, oh yeah, well I just made all that up in my own head last night. The dog walks past and goes, no, you didn't. So you know, <laughs> find your, you know, and basically it's to his whole lesson is to sort of find his other half, which is Marge. That's what his trip is about. It's his, his completeness, his marriage. They are what makes them work is that they balance, perfectly mm-hmm. balanced. 
Uh, I, you know, that's the big thing, isn't it? That most people will go on about is balance. It's all about balance. It really is. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd like to, all I ever want for people is to, all I ever want for people from the, with their experience with the occult is for them to sort of enjoy it. You know, enjoy enjoy your mind being expanded into a place that you've never been before. Don't be afraid of it, because I think it's people's fear of not being the same person they were going into the experience that scares them. That that's what they're scared of is change. That's what really. That, I, I I think that's really what the occult. If there was one lesson. I would say, I would sort of pass on to people about the occult. It's about change. It's about understanding and, and working with change and accepting that change is inevitable. Because there's one thing in this universe, one thing you can say about our creation, this universe that we live in, nothing is allowed to remain. Everything changes. Yep. So the whole... I mean, if you want to be deeply philosophical about it, the whole sort of thing about conservatism is a weird perversion because it's the one thing that the universe can't do. It can conserve energy, the same amount of energy exists in the universe now as existed at the very beginning of the universe and it will exist at the end of the universe. But it will change its form, forever change its form. So 100%. one of the problems I have is if you're trying to sell a concept to people of an eternal likeness at the end of all this, that everything remains the same and it's all wonderful, I think you're cheating people because the universe doesn't do that. There is no heaven where everything just stays like, you know, you look like the best you did on the best day ever. So I think in your favourite clothes, that, that's... That's cheating people. Mm -hmm. That's lying because that can't happen. This universe just does not do that. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know that's the one thing we do know about this universe. <laughs> and, you know, if your revelation is a frog, great, it's a frog. That's what goes for you. <laughs> it's as relevant as any of these. It's as relevant as angels. My buddy no, gets a spider. Is <laughs> his like revelation? Uh... Revelatory like dream sequences is sorry, <clears throat> so it comes to him as a spider. Like, um, I oh, don't... spider, sorry, yeah. Well, um, there you go. So it's kind of like you said, it just comes like a frog, lion, different animals come to different people. I've kind of mm. come mm. to notice, like, my mom's mm. a squirrel, <laughs> like, it, sometimes it come to her, and uh, you know, just different oh, really? animals. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like from her and her like I know this kind of gets in that kitschy like weird animal whitewash stuff but one of the lessons like I learned from my mom was like I needed to learn how to save money like I'm not never really been good at that and that was like mm -hmm. a lesson from the squirrel is storing for winter and saving for emergencies yeah. and that's something she's always tried to drill into my head hmm. yeah that was just very appropriate isn't it mm -hmm. it's incredibly appropriate I mean, <clears throat> I don't think my mother would ever call, would ever dream to call herself a witch. 
I grew up in a quite large town in the sort of nice part of an industrial town. And I thought it was perfectly normal to have wild birds hopping around the kitchen. Uh, to waiting to be fed and sitting on the Rayburn, uh, the towel rail of the Rayburn when it was cold, warming the tails on the Rayburn. So <laughs> I thought that was natural that wild birds were quite tame. So they, and of course it's not. Yeah, most people's experience of wild birds completely different. You know? But that was just what I grew up with. And my mum was just a natural like that. Uh, she used to have a robin that used to come and fetch her to go out in the garden. So because he'd wait for her to dig, because then there was he knew that worms. Ha ha ha. You know. So, <laughs> yeah, so and he used to literally fly through the kitchen, through the hall, through the living room, and out through the conservatory. He never hit a thing, and he never once hit anything. But he was like, he would come and get my mum. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Garden, come out, have a go. Come, come on, come on. <laughs> so, you know, most people, that's not their experience with wild birds. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked at, I, I remember a few months ago, I posted, retweeted something on Twitter, and it was, um, a guy with hummingbirds um, eating from his hand. And I just posted and just put, that experience is worth more than all the money in the world to me, to be to have such frail creatures, to be so trusted of you that they'll eat out of your hand. That's just amazing, you know what I mean? That to me is worth, you know, I'd rather have that experience than own a yacht, you know what I mean? Oh, a hundred percent. Like one of my other people look at you and go, "Oh, well, you're crazy. Why would you want a yacht when that only lasts for two seconds?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, that two seconds is perfection." <laughs> oh yeah, I went. My experience with Hellier too is like I would start to go outside more and experience like that go outside experience nature type stuff. And uh, talking to Chris and Anthony. Like, I never really understood, like, setting attention. And one time I'm like, so one day I just go out on a hike at the nature preserve, and I'm like, I hope I come across a deer today. I'm on the trail. I'm, like, I'm talking to my mom because she sent me a message or something about, like, needing something, and I'm like, I'll pick something up for you on the way home. And I look up from my phone, not 100 feet in front of me is a deer just staring right at me. Like eye to eye contact, we're looking at each other, and I'm just like, I take out the DSLR and I'm like, just taking pictures. But it was like that, like bond, like for that brief second, we just like me and the deer looked at each other. And it was like, like acknowledging each other's existence and just like it was uh, like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just wild experience. No, you know what I mean? So, no, I don't know. It's so perfect, and you know the 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 heart. The, H-A-R-T, which is uh, the sort of old English word for the deer. You know, the hern hunter is always portrayed, you know, with the hern wearing the deer antlers. Mm-hmm. They, they, are, they, they feature heavily in Northern European, partly because they, they were a herd animal. I think people tend to forget that. But they were a staple, pretty much a staple diet and herd animal for people, even before, probably even more than cattle for, in several parts of the Northern Europe, because they, they, they um, because the landscape suited them better than cattle. You know, if you live in mountains, deer is a farm. You know, cattle are practical when it comes to it. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the whole deer thing, and in North America, the deer is sort of central to many sort of like Native American spiritual practices, isn't it? Oh, definitely. The deer features, yeah, the deer features largely, you know, uh, as a spirit, as a powerful spirit. I mean, Herne the Hunter, you know, you know I, I, I grew up with the pop sort of version of it, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, um, uh, um, the Robin Sherwood series from the 1980s, sort of thing, which is kind of the only TV show that all the weirdos watched in the early 80s. It was the only TV show you ever kind of made an effort to watch. And that kind of reintroduced the Herne thing. and had quite a sort of deep effect on whole generation. It was sort of... It was to sort of my generation what the Harry Potter books were to the sort of generation that you know from the nineties and early two thousand sort of thing. And yeah, you know, the part of the whole part of things fascinating, yeah. In that um, it's cultural appropriation on a massive scale <laughs> for per- for you know for the purpose of making money, and yeah, it's opened thousands of kids' minds to the possibilities of something. Mm. So from that point of view, it's been highly positive, mostly positive. Even if, you know, Alan herself is a bit of a mess as a person, which I think she is, you know, I don't mean it in a nasty way, I just mean I think she's got deep issues that she's never worked through. 